That song certainly speaks to us as it is. Very thankful to be here, thankful for the prayer that Brother Darrell offered up on our behalf and would ask for a continuation of your prayer, praying that Lord would fill us with his spirit, that he would touch our hearts, and that he would get all the praise and the honor and the glory today for whatever's brought forth. I think a lot about <clears throat> the things that we believe and the things that mean so much to us. In Luke chapter 1, it says in the first verse, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. In this church, we have on the wall back there what we call the Articles of Faith. The sister churches, our primitive Baptist churches that we are uh, so well acquainted with so many, not only in Texas, around the country here, but across the land, friends with many. So many of us have that articles of faith somewhere on the wall in our church, and it's the things that are most surely believed among us. This morning, if God would bless, we're going to look at some of those, uh, especially we're going to look at the preservation of the saints. Before we get there, I want to make <clears throat> a few points. These things that are most surely believed among us. I want to go to Matthew or Mark, excuse me, chapter 4 for just a moment. This is not really totally directed at what we're going to speak on this morning, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the doctrines of grace and those great truths that make up what we as primitive Baptists believe from this church to our sister churches and across the land, what we hold dear and near to us and what we have written in the Articles of Faith. And there are other Articles of Faith, but, you know, we believe in what's called the Tulip Doctrine, if you would, and uh, we'll get into that for just in just a moment. But there's so many in this world that don't understand what grace really is. They'll tell you, oh, yes, we're, we're saved by grace, but... You must add to that grace. There's something required of you, and there's something that you must do. The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Paul said that in Ephesians chapter 2. And if you read the beginning verse of Ephesians chapter 2, there is absolutely no doubt that the context is in the eternal, not in the timely, not in the, in the time now. You know, so many fail to rightly divide the word of truth where God's word harmonizes. That is one of the greatest keys that we ever have in life is to make sure that what we read in God's word harmonizes in other areas. If it doesn't, there is a problem in our study and our ability to understand God's word because God's word, when understood, will come together in harmony. For an example, over in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I believe it's verse 16, Paul told him, Timothy, excuse me, he said, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continuing them. In doing so, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. If you don't begin to rightly divide that, divide that out, begin to understand the context, then you either declare that God contradicted himself because Paul said it's not of yourselves. Timothy said save yourselves. Both of them are true. But some people look at the word saved in the Bible as having an eternal consequence every place that is spoken of. And that's not the truth. And that's not our, that's not our context or our, our text this morning. But in Mark chapter 4, I want to read a few verses and, and give you an idea. When you understand the doctrines of grace, you, you, you've been freed. We're told in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty where, wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Do you know how many people in this world are entangled in a yoke of bondage? I've got to do this. I've got to do that. But you, when you understand the doctrines of grace, you understand there's nothing you and I can do. We never could do anything. It was all of Christ. We done all the sinning and he done all the saving. That, that's how it is. We notice in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4, and it said, In the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. Now, I'm going to make a point here that still doesn't reference what we're going for this morning, but I want you to understand something. There's a storm taking place here, a literal storm. A great wind comes upon the ocean. There are at least four literal storms in the Bible. One of them is when Jonah 
God sent a great tempest out on the water, a great wind. This wasn't some gentle breeze. Jonah was sent a wind or a storm of correction for his disobedience because he disobeyed God. Sometimes they're sent into our life. But then there are storms of perfection. You know, the disciples done just exactly what God, or Jesus told them to do here. They got in a boat. But notice what he said, let us pass over unto the other side. That's written in red. That tells me that no matter what storm you're, you're engulfed in in this life, if, if, you're, if Jesus with you, he's going to get you to the other side. You know, the waves may be boisterous, the wind may be great, but with Jesus, we'll get to the other side. We'll get to the other side of the storm. They got to the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, one thing we do find here too, if you read in Matthew 16, the disciples had a bad problem of remembering things. Remember not the miracles of the fishes and the loaves where he fed 4,000, he fed 5,000? How easily we forget. Peter said over in 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll not be negligent in putting you always in remembrance of these things even though you know them and you're established. You're established in the truth. There's a reason to hear God's truth over and over. It's not a one-time thing, brothers and sisters. It's something that we need fed upon all the days of our lives. And it says, uh, they went into the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat in, into the ship so that it was now full. Water was coming into the ship, and it was a difficult time. Jesus was in the ship. It wasn't like over Matthew 14 where he come walking up on the water. Jesus is literally in the ship with them right now. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Well, they ought not to ever said that. I made no such a statement, honestly, but they're human beings. And, and, and sometimes even God's people have a degree of fear when we ought not to have a degree of fear. We're not given the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1 and verse 7. Uh, we're not to be, but, but we are at times. Things of this world, this storm was not just some little gentle breeze. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Friends, I'm here to tell you that you can have a great calm in the life of a great storm, in the midst of a great storm, right here and now. But the point I want to make in this before we move on, back in verse 36, and it says, And there were also with him other little ships. This wasn't there wasn't just one ship out there. There was a big ship that was bigger, and Jesus and his disciples were on this ship. But think about all these little ships out there. They encountered this same storm. The storm was out there, and they enjoyed this great calm. But I'm telling you right now, they didn't know where it came from. But the disciples, those that were in the boat with Jesus, knew it was of Jesus. Friends, if you've been set free to know the truth, rejoice in that. I wish more people knew the truth of their doctrines of salvation by grace. I wish it. When you've been freed to that, you know, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 8, those Jews that believed on him, he said, If you continue in my word, then ye are my, my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Through a continuation of the study of God's word, the reading of God's word, now I want to make a point. It is God that gives a man light, and we know that from... 2 Timothy chapter 1. The gospel enlightens us. God reveals to us. He gives us light. But if we don't use the light we have, you ought not to expect God to give you more light. It just doesn't work that way. Are we using the light that God has given us for His glory and for His honor? We rejoice in the doctrines of salvation by grace. We'll go through a few of them here and we'll get over to where I want to get. We talked about the tulip doctrine, total depravity. We believe as primitive Baptists, in total depravity, does that mean that a man who is depraved, we're all depraved by nature, does that mean that we will absolutely go out and do the most uh, hideous thing, the, the, the worst thing possible? No, it doesn't. But it does mean we have no love for God. We have no desire for God. talks about the man in nature, the man who's not born of the Spirit of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned or understood. The world will tell you that if you can, ed you can educate the fool, 
You can teach him about God. You can draw him to God. But God says it's impossible. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5 says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I tell you, life always precedes actions. You didn't perform one act till you come forth from your mother's womb in a natural sense. I tell you, you won't do so in a spiritual sense either. The natural man, when he hears things concerning God himself, it's foolishness, foolishness unto him. And we could read the rest of those verses over in the four, uh, second chapter uh, prior to the 14th verse, and it explains it thoroughly. The natural man, man who is depraved, he doesn't love God, he doesn't desire God, God is not in his thoughts. Romans chapter 3 gives us an explicit look at man by nature. There's no fear of God in his eyes. There is none righteous, no, not one. So that's what we mean when we say total depravity. That means a man is incapable of coming to God, loving God. He doesn't desire God. When you speak things of God to the, to the natural man, it's foolishness in his eyes. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. We're told that in Psalms 53. The next uh, letter in that tulip doctrine is the U, unconditional election. That means that God chose his people not based upon their behavior. It says in what Ephesians 1 and 4, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. For those that were chosen, it says they're blameless because God looks at them through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're without blame. That's hard for the world to understand. As human beings, we have a hard time separating ourselves from the acts of men and, the, and our own sinful acts. But in Romans chapter 9, when he declares that he loved Jacob and he hated Esau, as it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Friends, I'm here to tell you, if you go back in the Old Testament and read that very event, anytime it says, as it is written, because it is written, it refers to a teaching in the Old Testament that's been brought forth and delivered in the New Testament. Over 504 times the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. God's truth is just as prevalent in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Verse 11 of Romans chapter 9 says, For the children not being born yet, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. God didn't choose you because he knew you was going to be such a good, outstanding individual, because you were going to walk in the course that, that would just get you to heaven. It's not by works of righteousness. It's not by your will. It's not by your desire. It's by the grace of Almighty God. That's how we, we get to heaven, not based upon our efforts, our works, our good intentions. It's unconditional. God chose his people in Christ. Now, as we talk about unconditional election, what was the question asked right after it said, as it is written, for Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated? What shall we say to these things? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid you know, when you read God's word and you don't understand something, you need to be careful and not take that on your own humanistic thoughts, something you can't answer. They said then, just like they say now, that could not possibly be fair. That, that ain't right. Everybody needs a chance. We wasn't saved on the chance system, brothers and sisters. For he saith unto Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it's not of him that willeth, or him that runneth. It's not according to your will. It's not according to you running around trying to do all these good works, but it's of God who showeth mercy. That's unconditional election. And there's many more scriptures and pas uh, passages we could use. But that's what the use for. Then we go to the L, limited atonement, or as some would call it, particular redemption. Some people don't like the fact that primitive Baptists use the word limited atonement. It's not limited in its number. It's limited in its scope. God saved his people 
from their sins. For she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There's nothing in that verse that leaves you to wonder what Jesus came for and what he was going to accomplish. That word his is a personal possessive pronoun. It means they belong to him. They were given to him by the Father in the covenant of grace before time began. You see, the eternal covenant, the everlasting covenant, was not a covenant made between God and man. God did make covenants with man, and they always failed because man couldn't live up his end of the bargain. No better than you and I can live up to the end of that bargain today. The eternal covenant, the everlasting covenant, was made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Father said, I'll choose them. I'll set them apart. Jesus said, I'll come. The eternal logos, the eternal word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning. That's Jesus Christ. He was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld him as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the eternal covenant. And the Holy Spirit said, I'll call them. Every one of them I'll call out of darkness into his marvelous light. Somewhere between the time they're conceived in their mother's womb and the time that they close their eyes in death. We have a couple examples. We know that John the Baptist was born of the Holy Spirit before he ever come forth from his mother's womb. Because when Mary came to tell Elizabeth the salutation of Jesus Christ to be born as the Savior of the world, John himself jumped or leaped for joy in his mother's womb. No doubt he was born of the Spirit of God before he ever come forth out. We look at the thief on the right hand of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll not preach on that today, but that's one of the most beautiful pictures of the immediate regeneration of the soul by God himself in that story. If you read the, the account in Matthew and you read the account in Luke, they're totally different. The scoffers will tell you that your contradicts it, inconsistent. A failure to understand the immediate regeneration of the soul will leave you wondering at the difference in those two scriptures. When you understand that, there is nothing to wonder. There was a change that took place when God said, let there be light, there was light. When God called, Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, it wasn't a process, it went over time. It was immediate. When God speaks, it's done. When he commands, it stands fast. In Psalms 33, it tells us. It's sure, it's certain. But it is limited. And even though I believe that number to be a vast number, because we go to the book of Hosea, we go to the book of Hebrews, it tells us, Thereas the stars in heaven are the sands of sea, an innumerable amount that no man can number. I believe the family of God will be large. I believe I can prove it in the words of the Bible. But I'll tell you right now, it's particular in its scope. It's limited in its scope to those that were chosen and elected in the Lord Jesus Christ before time began. And we move over to the I, irresistible grace. Some, sometimes we call it the effectual call. What we mean is that when God calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light, it's not a process where you think about it. It's not an invitation to come. Because unless God drags you out of there, you won't come. We're told in John chapter 5, he told those folks, he says, you will not come to me that you might have life. Furthermore, in John 6 and 44, it says, no man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. To draw him means to drag him. That's what that word literally means. Just like you'd drag your kid back to the back room to give him a good whipping. He didn't go willingly. In John chapter 1 and verse 13 it says, Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh. That takes care of you right now. It wasn't your will. Some people will say, well, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior is a work. Not a work. It may not be a work, but I'll assure you, you have to will yourself to do that. It's not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. So it's not of the will of the preacher, not the will of your brother and sister, or, or any family member or friend down the road. It, it's of God. It's a sovereign work of Almighty God. When he calls a man out of darkness, there's a change. But always remember, life must always precede actions. We all understand that in the natural. But when Paul said in Ephesians 2 and 1, you hath he quickened. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, most of the literal world, even the Christian world, cannot compare spiritual death with corporal death. But the Bible says they're the same. You're as dead to spiritual things if you're not born of the Spirit of God as the dead body in the grave is to natural things that's going on in life today. You know, they go out and they try to educate the fool, the dead who are dead in spirit, uh, trespasses and sins. Go out to the graveyard today and sit among those loved ones you know out there and talk to them. 
talk to them tomorrow. How, will you ever get a response? Absolutely not. The dead cannot respond. They have no ability to respond. Paul says we were dead in trespasses and sins. But when God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous life, there's a great change that takes place. We're told in John chapter 5, Verily, verily, the hour is coming, and now is. Very important. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Why did some of them hear and some of them didn't? Because God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is a personal Savior. He called Lazarus personally out of the grave by his name. What if Jesus had said, Come forth, every grave and every, everybody in every grave would have come forth. But he directed it at Lazarus. He directs it at the, those that are dead and trespasses and sin. And when he does, they come out of darkness into his marvelous light without question. He goes on in John 28 and it says, the, hour, the day is coming or the hour is coming when all that are in your graves shall hear his voice. That's the resurrection. The key to John 5 and 25 is he says the hour is coming and now is. We know the general resurrection of the dead, the last coming hadn't happened. Jesus said it was right then when he spoke those words, and it's coming. And it's still coming until the last heir of grace is born into this world. That's how it's going to be, until the last child of grace is born into this world naturally. And born of the Spirit of God will this be brought to an end. It's limited to those, and it's an irresistible grace that calls them out of darkness. You've been called, you've been saved. By God's grace, you've been called with a holy calling, not according to your own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us before the foundation of the world. And now I want to look at the P, preservation of the saints. There are those that believe the P would stand for perseverance, and I think that's a noble thought. But we want to look at what the Bible says. All things need to come together. In Jude chapter 1, verse 1, or only there's only one chapter, Jude verse 1, it says, the Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, set apart, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. Preserved means to guard, to keep. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. John chapter 17, verse 2, he says, As thou hast given him power, this was Jesus speaking, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. Peter put it like this in 1 Peter chapter uh, 1. In verse 2 he says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We move on down to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath forgot, has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. The world tells you that there's a place reserved in heaven for you, but you must go out and make a right decision, make a right choice. Have you ever called up a hotel and made just a blatant reservation and not given your name? Said, I want a reservation here in a couple of months or a year. A reservation is made and there's a name placed on that reservation. That's the way it is in heaven. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, in the eternal covenant, in the, in, in the book of, of the redeemed. It's written there. And there's a place reserved for God's elect in heaven who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. They're kept by the power of God. Now there are those that, even some that I know among us, that believe that all the elect will hear the gospel. And they will persevere. If they don't persevere, then they teach that they were not a child of God or an elect to begin with, they were a false professor. Now, when I spoke of the parable of the sower over there a while ago, you know, there's four grounds there. There are folks that believe the only ground that are children of God is the good ground. I believe all four are. I believe it's without a doubt. You know, I farmed all my life, and the literal lesson is it takes a lot of cultivation. It takes a lot of tillage. 
takes a lot of management. I had some of the best ground in the county I farmed in, and I had some of the worst ground. But with the proper fertilization, the proper cultivation, the proper tillage, I brought forth as much from that bad ground as I did from that good ground. I tell you right now, that one about the thorns and the, and, and the, the thistles, you don't just go sow seed out there as a farmer and drive off for six months and come back and expect to have a good crop. There's a vast difference when we hear about discipleship and sonship. All true disciples are children of God, but not all of God's children are true disciples. When Jesus told those Jews that believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, a true disciple is a true student and pupil of God. But some of God's people have been carried away by the cares of this world and by the deceitfulness of riches. And even though they rejoiced in the word, they heard the word, they allowed the world and the things of this world to choke it out. You know, some would say, well, my question is, if, if, we, if God's children are going to persevere, then why is there one warning after another given in God's word teaching us that the things of this world constantly distract us. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. If we could persevere without falling away or getting off to the right or the left, why would we be warned time and time and time again? We, can go, we could go throughout Scripture and see those warnings. We're kept by the power of God. We're preserved in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at some of those instances that we speak of let me see how time's going, and I, I want to move over. And the first thing I want to look at, I want to go to the book of Genesis. I want to go to chapter 12 and begin to. We know in Genesis chapter 12, we begin the story of Abram. We're just going to call him Abraham. This was Abram before God changed his name. And his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot. Abraham left his home country, and there's no record that he ever seen his family again, except for his wife and for his nephew Lot that journeyed out of that land with him, the land of the Chaldees, I believe. In verse 10 it says, And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. As I stated a, a Sunday or two ago, that any time the Bible says talks about going down into Egypt, it's talking about going out into this world to seek your help. When you're going up to Jerusalem, you're seeking your help from God. A famine came, and, you know, Abraham is a very faithful man, and, and he's spoken highly of by God in, in the Word of God, but he's not a perfect man. He's a sinner just like the rest of us. And here's a time that he got himself and his wife into a mess when he went down into Egypt. But the point I want out of this is when Lot went down there, he loved what he seen. The Bible tells us over in the New Testament that we're to walk by faith and not by sight. As you move on to the 13th chapter of the book of Genesis, we find that Lot's herds and Abram's herds grew, and I'm not going to read all this for time's sake. They grew to be too large to be together, you might say. They, they, they needed to separate themselves. So Abraham, being the the very faithful and good man that he was, he says, you take the left and I'll take the right, or you take the right and I'll take the left. Well, we can see what Lot took. He looked out over the plain, the well-watered plain, and that's the one he chose. Let's, and Lot lifted up his eyes in verse 10 and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well-watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest into Zoar, then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom, that the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. You know, we're told to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world in 1 John chapter 2. That's a warning. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, but Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Someone who was going along with the Apostle Paul, forsaking for the love of this present world. Lot loved this world. He loved what he saw, and he loved the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though sin was bad there, he recognized God, but he loved these cities, and he loved what he saw, and he loved living here 
upon the earth. We go to the 19th chapter, I believe it is. We know several occurrences took place in Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're not going to take the time to go through all those. We know the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah came up before the Lord, and the Lord sent angels to the city to tell Lot, his wife, and his family to leave because God was going to rain down from heaven fire and brimstone and destroy those cities because of the wickedness and the ungodliness in those cities. And God did just that. But he warned Abraham, I mean, warned Lot and his wife and family to leave, and they did. They didn't want to go where they were first told to go, and, and like I said, we could get into a lot of that, but I want to go to the 19th chapter and the 30th verse. And Lot went up out of Zoar, and he dwelt in the mountain, and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar, and he dwelt in the cave, he and his two daughters. Actually, the last we know of Lot is about his ungodly and difficult as we'll ever see anything in the Bible. He ended up in this cave and the two daughters decided that they wasn't going to have a man in their life anymore so they would preserve seed unto their father by getting pregnant from their father. First of all, they decided to get him drunk on wine and they did just that. One night one of them laid with the other the following day, the same thing took place in the other, and they both become pregnant with children from their own dad. Now, maybe some folks consider that to be persevering, but I don't. Most folks, if it wasn't for what we're going to go read in the New Testament, would tell you the lot's not a child of God, and he's not going to end up in heaven. But I don't believe that. I believe the Bible tells us, without a shadow of a doubt, that Lot is a child of God, and Lot will be in glory. The two children that came out of the, of the womb of Lot, or out of his loins, from his own daughters were the Moabites and the Ammonites. Ammonites. They were both enemies of the children of God. So Lot's life didn't end real well. He loved this old world and he loved everything about it. But let's, let's run over now to 2 Peter chapter 2. And let's see what it says as we go there. Let's begin in verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot. The Bible says Lot was just. Doesn't sound very good at the end of his life, does it? Are you just based upon your own words and your own actions? Do you know that Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary? And he himself bore our sins in his own body. But friends, if he hadn't arose from the grave, we'd still be in our sins. He rose for our justification. And he delivered. This wasn't into heaven. He delivered him out of those cities. We know that's the story. There's a deliverance that took place in time. Just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation. And that word conversation is not just words. In the Bible, that means lifestyle. He was vexed with that lifestyle. It includes what they said, but it includes the way that those folks were living in that city. And you, if you've set it out, there was every kind of ungodliness going on in Sodom and Gomorrah before they were destroyed of the wicked. Lot was just in the eyes of God, justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. For that righteous man, you know he didn't have any righteousness of his own, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I believe it's verse 20. He hath made Jesus Christ sin for us. Who knew no sin? There was no sin in Jesus Christ. There is none righteous, no, not one. You know, when we talked about particular redemption or unconditional election, some say, well, God looked down through time. He looked down to see who would do good and who wouldn't, and he elected those who would do good. Friends, I'm here to tell you there wasn't one of us that would do good. God did look down, Psalms 53. God looked down upon the children of men, see if any did understand, any did seek God. Every one of them were gone back. If all together become filthy, there's not one that doeth good, no, not one. Go to Romans chapter 3, and that same truth is delivered by Paul. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. If you look at the life a lot, 
Just as you look at the life of Esau and Jacob. He loved Jacob and he hated Esau. But if you go read that account, Esau seems to be a far better man than Jacob. Jacob was a swindler, a deceiver. I mean, if you're just basing it on the account that we have to read, Jacob certainly looks like the better man. But Jacob wasn't chased, um, chosen based upon what he would do, the good or the evil. That's clear in Romans chapter 9. It says here, For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. You know, Lot chose where to live, didn't he? He walked by sight and not by faith like Abraham. He got himself in a mess, but he loved this world just like Demas did. God commands us, love not the world, neither things are in the world. The pride of life, the lust of the flesh, there's many things that go on. We're warned time and time again in the Bible of where we'll be led if we allow those things to take over our life, if we allow them to be the preeminence of our life, even ourself. I tell you right now, I know Lot, and I believe without a doubt the Bible teaches us he's in heaven, but he didn't persevere. And I, I'm not here to condone sin. We ought to all persevere. We ought to do the best we can. The only place that perseverance is used in the Bible, the actual word, is in Romans chapter 6. And it's talking about persevering in prayer for all the saints. And we ought to do that. Long about the 20th verse. But we ought to continue. We ought to walk. It's, I'm not asking you to walk contrary. The child of God ought to put these things away. But the Bible teaches us there's so many distractions in life and how easily we're carried away in life by these things. Lot surely was. But he was just because he'd been vexed. He was righteous. And in our eyes, he couldn't have been righteous. But all our righteousness, we're all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousness is or as filthy rags. The best that we could ever do in this life is filth in the sight of Almighty God. That tells us that in Isaiah chapter 64. Let's think about Solomon for a minute. Great illustration. Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba. In the beginning, Solomon, when he became king... David wanted to build the temple, but God wouldn't allow him to build the temple because he's a man of war. He says, your son will build it. God loved Solomon, even though he was the son of that adulterous relationship of the woman Bathsheba. But God loved him and said that Solomon will, you know, he's going to be the one to build the temple. Solomon said a prayer, or God came to him at night and he said a prayer asking for nothing but judgment and wisdom to judge such a, a great amount of people. He was very young, and, and he seen this as something to take on that was mighty that he couldn't handle. And God was pleased with what he said, very pleased. We're told in Matthew 6 and 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto thee. Solomon sought what was right in the beginning. I, I will argue that his heart was as perfect and right with God in the beginning of his time as anyone's was. He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for the life of his enemies. He just asked for wisdom and understanding to judge such a great people that come in and out before him. And, and, and what he asked for, it pleased him. God said, Below, Behold, I... Verse 12, 1 Kings chapter 3, Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise. And he added, And I also have given thee that which thou hast not asked. These things were added unto him. Solomon, like any other man, he was known throughout the world. Can you imagine how hard it was not to become prideful and boastful if you'd been Solomon. People traveled all over the world. Let, let's suggest for a moment that one of us was out here in the world and we had tons of folks coming from all over the place to see if we was as wise as they'd heard, if we had that great wisdom, if we was everything that was being told. Do you think we'd be puffed up and think pretty highly of ourselves and be filled with pride? I bet we would. You know, when people start coming and inquiring of you all the time, it, it, 
you're going to feel pretty elevated. But you get to 1 Kings chapter 11. At this time, Solomon had made so many deals with so many kings of the world that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, that's a, that's a story in itself, and we won't go there. That's, it's almost unimaginable. In verse 4 of chapter 11, it said, For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. We know that the kingdom was rent except from, from Solomon except for one tri tribe. It says in verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But Solomon, he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Now some people might argue that Solomon's not in heaven. I'll argue with them all day long that he is. God inspired him to write three books of the Bible, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the, and the book of the Song of Solomon. Yep, Solomon was affected by the things of this world. And I'll tell you, if we'd have been in his position, I, I, I'll, I'll almost tell you, I, without a doubt, I believe every one of us would have been in the same condition. If we'd have been made that wise, and we'd have been given all those riches, and we had people traveling from all over the world to hear the, our wisdom, I don't think for one minute it had a great effect on us. That's the things of this world that we're to guard against. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And our flesh is no stronger than Solomon's flesh or any other. I don't believe Solomon persevered, and I believe that some might have him and, uh, as not a child of God, but I, I, I believe with all my heart that he is. Let's, uh, let's look at a couple more verses and we'll close. Over in 2 Timothy, uh, we're going to look at an account where there are folks in this world that believe they were sent by God to determine who God's children are. They really are. You know, uh, they don't see what they want to see in an individual. They don't see the things that would be the way they ought to be. You know, when you look at the two sons over in Luke chapter 15, the, the uh, parable of the sons, they were both sons. There's a vast difference in sonship and discipleship. We need to make that distinction when we're studying no doubt that the rebel son didn't persevere uh, all the days of his life. He came to himself, no doubt about that. The Bible tells us he did. The elder brother stayed home and he thought he persevered and yet he stood as condemned before God before his self-righteousness and his pride and his anger at his younger brother who he wanted to have no part with it as that rebel son did. But in 2 Timothy, verses six, chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, there were two men preaching called uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And they preached that the resurrection already passed, who concerning the truth have erred, saying in verse 18, that the resurrection is past already and it overthrowed the faith of some. They meant to subvert it, to totally ruin it. My point is here, these folks had faith or had an appearance of faith, but there come a time after this preaching that you and I would have probably never known that they were, had any faith. It didn't appear. They couldn't see it. But verse 19 is a verse that's always gave me the greatest comfort. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Aren't you thankful that God knows who his children are and he didn't put you here to determine who they are? Because I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't even determine that I'm one. I just hope that I'm one. I mean, when I look at how sinful I am and I look at the sins that I've committed over my life, I see myself like that younger brother. I'm not worthy to be called thy son. I'm not. I'm honest as I can be with you. I don't remember every sin, but I remember enough of them. I, I can't imagine that God saved me or was merciful to me. But that's the God that you and I serve. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. And we'll go to one more. Try to get through it real quick. In Romans chapter 11, I'm, I'm going to read about four verses or five here. It says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? Paul said this concerning the, uh, the Jews. Jews. God forbid, for I am an Israelite, 
of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Will ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, which is Elijah in this verse, we'll go with the Old Testament in a minute, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel. He prayed that God would bring that great drought for three and a half years, and I tell you it was the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, and that's that God answered his prayer. And then when he prayed again, he brought the rain. He says, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. You know, I know that we're not the only ones serving, but it got so bad at this time that Elijah said, ain't nobody left. It's me and me alone to worship and serve you. But what saith the answer of God unto him? He said, I have reserved unto me, to myself, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. There's 7,000 men at that present moment that Elijah was totally, completely, and absolutely unaware of because we'll see over there just as he said here, I'm it. I'm the last there is. This is how corrupt it's got. Even so, then at this present time, also is there a remnant according to the election of grace. Understand, that does not mean that there are only 7,000 Jews going to heaven. Notice what it says, that according to the election of grace at this present time. How many present times could you say through the history of the world there's been? There's a large number of Jews. This is at that very moment, at that present time. Let's go over to, back to 1 Kings chapter 19. We begin in verse 10. You know, uh, verse 19 deals with the widow woman and her son, deals with him praying after that event's over about it raining again, and he begins in verse nine, chapter 19, but he gets to verse 10, and, he, and Jezebel had threatened him. It's amazing, after God had answered his prayer and all these things had been taken care of, he has fear over Jezebel that's going to take his life. But in verse 10 it says, And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He said, I'm it, Lord. There's nobody left. I want you to think about the perspective that he had. This, was, this is real. This is the way he seen it at that time. You reckon we could ever get to that point, and, and that's all we saw? We're it? That's what Elijah thought. I'm it. There's no one else. Verse 18. Yet I have left me 7,000 Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. I'm thankful to God that I wasn't put here to know who his children are. I'm thankful that God knows everyone that belongs to him. I'm thankful that God knows that those he chose in Christ Jesus, that their sins were paid for by the blood of Christ. As I quoted a few weeks ago, 2 Samuel 23 and 5 reminds me a whole lot about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus was saying, a type of David in that. At the end of David speaking, he says, Although my house be not so with God, in the fifth verse. David's house wasn't so. His, his family had turned into a bunch of rebels. Absalom tried to kill him. Amnon raided, uh, uh, raped Absalom's sister. I mean, his house wasn't so. He wasn't raising his children as he should. But I tell you what, the church of God at different times, and I believe at this time it's not so with God, not as it should be. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. It was ordered in everything and it was sure. David said, this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Friends, God's kingdom is not being populated as we move through time. The names of God's children were chosen in Christ, written in the Lamb's book of life. And Jesus came and saved each and every one of them from their sins. And although some of his children get distracted by the things of this world, just like Lot. Lot got very distracted. I mean, you, you can't find a better picture of a person that didn't, didn't walk and persevere as he ought to have. He realized, God, when those three angels come to the gate of Sodom, he realized, he, he knew who God was, but he was still there in the city. He loved the city. He loved the plain. He was just like Demas. He loved this present life. 
And unfortunately, a lot of God's children do too. His life ended up in a terrible way. You know, David, end of David's life wasn't a great life either for the sins that he had committed. Nathan said, God had put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. David's in heaven, I'll assure you. God put away his sin through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it didn't mean he wouldn't suffer the consequences of what he'd done in his life when he did. There were four woes pronounced on David because of the sins that he committed. When we walk contrary to God's ways, we're going to suffer. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. And unfortunately, if we're not focused upon the Lord and we lose sight of the Lord, the world's coming in. We have great storms in life. Our own human nature is against God. Satan's out there trying to tempt us continuously. That's why we need to be in the house of the Lord. That's why we need to be in prayer. That's why we need to hear the preaching of the gospel. Because the warfare we undergo, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, is real. The war between the flesh and the spirit. Go to Romans chapter 7. You read all about that war. Paul said evil, even when he done good, evil was present with him. It is. It's present with all of us. I made a great statement. I say a great statement. One that I wouldn't call it a great statement. I just made a statement that I think really uh, tells it like it is. Go out on a very clear night on your porch and look at the stars in heaven and look at the black and the darkness that surrounds them. That's how it is here in this life. You can't get away from it. And it's attacking you from every direction, from every side. And if we ain't careful, sometimes it draws us away from the Lord in a way that we don't want to be drawn away from the Lord. May God bless us to stay focused and to put Jesus Christ as the preeminence of our life. But to rejoice in the truth of salvation by grace. When you understand if it hadn't been for God and God alone saving your soul, you have no hope. Then you can rejoice. You've been freed. That's, that's the freedom you've been given to understand the doctrines of grace. Is that God came to save his people and that he accomplished everything he came to do. Not a one will fail to be in heaven that he died for. God didn't send his son to die in vain. He didn't die in vain. If, not, if there's one person for whom Jesus died for that's not in heaven, God is not just. Because he demands that you pay again for the sins that Jesus Christ his son paid for on the cross of Calvary. That's not justice. Jesus paid for them in full, past, present, and future. We may suffer for them in time, but Jesus paid for them.